This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Welcome to Total Saints Podcast. If you're a regular listener to our pod, then uh, welcome back. If you're a brand new listener, then welcome and uh, thanks very much for joining us. My name's Ben Stanfield, at Ben Stanners on Twitter, and I'm the host of Total Saints Podcast. We've got lots of previous episodes. This is uh, TSP114, so there's at least 113 other ones available out there. A number of them include ex-Saint interviews with the likes of Matt Letizia, Francis Benali, Antti Niemi, Jim McAlliog, and just last week, Terry Payne. So feel free to uh, go back through our archives, and if there's any that uh, particularly take your fancy, give them a listen. We'd very much appreciate it. All those episodes are available via the likes of iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Acast, or your preferred channel. Don't forget you can find us on Facebook at Total Saints Pod. We're also on Twitter. You can follow us at Total Saints Pod. And if you'd like to get in touch with any comments, feedback, questions, etc., you can always send us an email, totalsaintspodcast at yahoo.com. This episode features a great Total Recall alongside our friends from the Saints Archive. A wonderful man who spent nearly 40 years in and around Saints and, uh, you know, probably epitomises everything that our club stands for. So sit back, relax and enjoy it. Sponsored by Happy Hot Tubs. This is our Total Recall on TSP 114. I'd really love a hot tub, but I don't know where to start. How easy is the process? It's as easy as one, two, three. Who are you? I'm the man who puts happy people in hot tubs. One, choose your hot tub at Happy Hot Tubs. Two, choose your accessories. And three, choose how you want to pay. With 0% finance available on selected tubs, we even accept American Express. You deserve happy. And at Happy Hot Tubs, it's as easy as one, two, three. HappyHotTubs.co.uk Bobby Stokes. Stokes has put 
Yes, it's time for our latest Total Recall, as alongside regular recaller Will Dorr from Saints Archive, we welcome along yet another saint. Our guest on this episode is one of the most passionate and enthusiastic people you will ever find in and around St Mary's. He started coaching at Saints in 1984, became first team manager in 1995, kept the club in the Premier League in 1996, against all the odds, and has been Adam Blackmore's right-hand man on Radio Solent for well over a decade now. It is, of course... Dave Merrington. Dave, our great pleasure to welcome you on. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with both of you. Uh, it's um, it's just nice to have a conversation. I know we uh, we were just talking before we started about yeah the uh, the lack of football at the moment. So it's lovely to uh, catch up with you, Dave. So you know, like we do on a lot of our total recalls, we're going to have a chat through your career and reminisce about some of your favourite moments. Um, we've an awful lot to get through. So many great stories and views we know you're looking forward to sharing. But before we talk about Saints, Dave, you of course made nearly a hundred appearances for Burnley as a player during the mid to late 60s and early 70s. What are your memories of playing during those days and what sort of footballer were you? Because I think you were centre-half by trade, is that right? I was actually a winger when I joined Burnley. But because of my build and, and the manner in which I played the game, they, they moved you around at Burnley. Burnley was a very family-orientated club at the time and uh, they were probably one of the main clubs in the country mm. for developing players. And they had a terrific scout uh, in the northeast, called Jack Hickson, who sent a number of players down to Burnley. In actual fact, he was the one who sent Alan Shearer down uh, to Southampton ah. for, because he knew Laurie well. Right. But it was it was just a great club and a great club for for developing young players and not only for for my career, but it, it encouraged me to want to stay in the game as a coach, Ben. Yeah, and I saw you score one goal, Dave, right? So you must reminisce and tell everyone about that goal, surely. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was against Man City. It was a corner on the left-hand side come in, and uh, I jumped up into the six-yard box and, and, and scored, and uh, didn't get many. But uh, I was unfortunate, Bernie, that I, I developed an injury there, an mm. Achilles tendon injury, which was quite a bad one, and the treatment at the time, they didn't have the expertise yeah. Uh, to get it right, I left Burnley, went to Bristol City, but that injury actually finished me. But while I was at Burnley, I played in the first team and uh, I was there 11 years. I captained the side. And of course, we played in Europe in the Fairs Cup, right. which would be the UEFA Cup now. One of the things I remember most about that, Ben, was we got drawn against Naples. We'd gone through against one or two sides and uh, the following round we got in against Naples and we were drawn at home first and I think we won the game 3-0 and uh, then we went to Naples and uh, the side uh, was a terrific side they had Altafini a number of players international players in their side but it was a very hostile place it was not something that at the time English clubs were used to and at Naples they had a moat around the ground <laughs> and uh, we played the game and, and we got into the last 10 minutes or so, and it was nil-nil. We were going to go through, and then all hell broke loose. Um, there was a corner against us, and Altafini spit at the goalkeeper, and uh, it turned into a bit of a schmozzle. The referee separated everybody, and then eventually when the final whistle went, 
there was a riot round the ground, and I can remember Harry Potts, the manager, really funny, running across the pitch and passing us and shouting, boys, run for your lives, run for your lives. <laughs> and what was happening then was the spectators were sitting on little cushions and there were compressed cardboard and they were setting fire to them and they were whizzing them through the air like saucers and they were coming across, whipping across the top and uh, as we were running towards the tunnel, they were trying to get across the moat and uh, the security people were actually throwing, <laughs> throwing the spectators back down the moat. And uh, we got in into the dressing room and uh, one of the players was missing. It was a big goalkeeper, Adam Blackall. And it was a big, big lad, great lad. As a boy, I was, when he was coming through Scotland, he was a bit of a boxer as well. Right. And uh, we got into the dressing room and the doors, there were glass doors. And then all of a sudden, I was next to a guy called Willie Morgan, who eventually went to Man United. And Willie and I were next to each other. The doors were just just come off the hinges. And Adam had dragged through three guys <laughs> in plain clothes. And uh, he had these three guys around him, and Willie pulled one off, and I pulled another one off. And uh, I, I always remember, I had him around the neck. And as I'm pulling him off, he reached inside his pocket, and I could see a gun. Oh, my goodness. Oh. <laughs> and we had white shorts on that didn't say white long. <laughs> and and uh, as soon as I saw the gun, like, the holster in his, I, I dropped him, let him go, and he's gone, police, police, police. And what it was... They were trying to get a hold of Adam and take him uh, into one of the rooms for his own security. I think he had a punch-up with one of the players. Yeah. Uh, one of the players had punched him, and he, of course he retaliated, and the police were trying to, to help him, really. But funny story, and then afterwards, we were due to go back to the hotel, and the chairman come down, Bob Lord, and he said, to hell with this, we're not staying here any longer. <laughs> and he rang the pilot of this, uh, the hired plane we had, we got onto the coach because the coach came down under the, the stadium. Yeah. I'd not experienced anything like it, neither the other players. Fantastic stadium. And the coach came underneath. You got out of the coach and into the dressing room. Well, we got back onto the coach, and this chief of police got on. He was immaculate. He was a guy over six foot. He had his medals on, and he said, uh, spoke perfect English. He said, fellas, he said, you've got to put coats over your head because when we pull out, there's all flats around the ground and they're notorious for throwing the plant pods down onto the top of the coaches. And of course we had a glass roof, you see. Yeah, and as the coach pulled out, uh, we could see uh, they got the troops out and there was a, a couple of vehicles there, an armored car. And uh, we got into the middle and we drove away. We never had any problems, got to the airport and, uh, and got home safely. But it was something that you experience in the game, like violence, that uh, was quite frightening at the time. But when you look back, it's quite a funny story. Yeah, crikey, I feel worn out. We've only had one question so far, Dave. Blimey, I mean, that was uh, an emotional roller coaster, <laughs> wasn't it? But, uh, I mean, after all that then, crikey, by the time you'd settled down in the late 70s and uh, after finishing playing, as you mentioned, you have had a couple of stints as caretaker manager, first at Sunderland in 1978 and then at Leeds in 1980, albeit the latter for only one game. And, of course, in both instances, you followed on from Jimmy Anderson. Um, focusing on the, the Sunderland opportunity, Dave, I, I did my research, so I saw that your eight games in charge of the club in the second division 
which is the equivalent of the championship today, saw you do pretty well, winning four, drawing two and losing two, including beating Bristol Rovers 5-0 at home. Um, I believe you were then offered the job on a full-time basis but decided not to accept the offer. So why was that, Dave? And do you ever look back and sort of regret that decision? Yeah, I mean, I, I look back, Ben, and um, sometimes uh, in life you look at your career and... Uh, I mean, when I left Burnley, I went to Bristol City, went back to Burnley, and then I went to Sunderland with Jimmy Adamson, who was a great coach, a great manager. It was during that time Jimmy was, uh, uh, his wife had took ill, and uh, I took over for a while, and then Jimmy moved to Leeds, mm. and uh, he wanted me to join him at Leeds, and I'd given him my word, and I went down and, and met the, the directors and gave them my word, and then Sunderland uh, went for two or three people, they actually went for Brian Clough, right. and then um, they eventually went for Laurie McNenemy. They all turned them down, and uh, they offered me the job. But by then, it was too late, and I'd given my, my word uh, to go with Jimmy to Leeds. Looking back in hindsight, I, I think maybe he's at that age and at that time, I, I should have took the job then. Mm. And uh, while I was at Leeds, um, Jim got finished there. That was a difficult situation to handle. And I went out of the game for three years and worked in the probation service. So it was quite a ride, really. After a couple of years obviously out of the game, you got a call from uh, Laurie McManamy, who was Saints manager in 1983, asking you to come down to Southampton and speak to him in Ted Bates. What was your memories of that particular meeting? Well, Laurie rang me up and uh, he's a great guy, Laurie, and he's, uh, he's very persuasive. And I'd known him a while, and uh, he said, look, the game's changing, Dave, and I want somebody to handle the youth setup, but I want somebody who can not only handle the youth setup between sort of 15 and 21, but I want somebody who can handle senior pros as well. So it was a bit of a mixture, but really, predominantly, the job's going to be youth team manager. And uh, I met uh, Laurie at the Potter's Heron with uh, Ted Bates and Mr. Woodford. We discussed uh, how Burnley uh, had their set-up, their youth set-up, and because it was extremely successful, at Burnley there was a number of players all came through the youth team into the first team, and that's how they worked. They were a provincial club, uh, and they were very successful at it. And I explained my thoughts of how I thought the job should be done, and of course, Laurie offered me the job, and I decided to take it. I didn't think at first that my wife would want to come down, but but she did. Um, we had a family at the time, and I've been here ever since. But the program that we set up here um, with Laurie was extensive. It was, um, I would say, very detailed, very disciplined. Mm. And what I did when I took over the youth setup, took the hours of the week and split them up, we concentrated on covering their physical, their fitness, their coaching, helping them to understand um, themselves as individuals. But on top of that, we had a, uh, their education program as well for one day a week. But the other days, every minute of the day was taken up uh, with their program. Mm. You know, it was so detailed. For instance, how to play their position. What is your position? How to play in a collective situation and how to play in a back four, how to play in a midfield and a front so it was a, a program that, that I felt once the boys left us, they were already well-programmed and disciplined, 
and understand the game, mm. you know, the tactic side of the game, how to play against formations. And what I would do is set them problems. Yeah. It might seem strange this, but if a player um, can think for himself, and that was what we were trying to do, was to get the players to respond and think for themselves and believe in themselves, then once they got on the field of play, they knew how to react, how to play against 4-3-3 how to play against the sweeper, how to play against the side who'll play 4-5-1. And I think all these things were important in their development. So when they were passed on, they were pretty rounded, solid professionals by the time they got to the first team. And what were your first impressions, obviously, of the club in the Southampton area when you came down, Dave? Well, the first thing we noticed was a top court warmer, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> than being up north. I mean, when I worked in, uh, in Sunderland, Gee whiz, the northeast winds coming off, <laughs> off the coast. Uh, you'd be doing a training session and the boars would be flying all over. And then all of a sudden you come down here and, and the weather was totally different. And, and I loved every minute. But one of the things I, I loved about the area was I loved the Dell and I loved the, the way the, the, the fans came in to the Dell and the atmosphere at the Dell. It was a bit special. Mm. And let me tell you why. Because they were so close to the playing area, you could just get the atmosphere. The players sensed the atmosphere. If you were in the box, in the technical area, you felt the atmosphere. It, it was really a great place to be like. you know. But part of the program as well was that we tried to establish a, a pastoral program. And I think it's important to mention this mm. because we wanted to cater for the... The full person, if you know what I mean, uh, mind, body, and spirit. And uh, so we took care of their physical condition. Uh, we took care of, of their mind mentally. They were quite disciplined. The jobs that they had to do, everything had to be done right. If it wasn't, it was done again. But the boys thrived on it, you know. Yeah. And I think that we wanted them to have a, a responsibility, not only in the football club, but away from the football club and their timekeeping was was excellent the environment in which they were working like i say was disciplined but i wanted a bit more than that i wanted a pastoral program and we brought in a chaplain um, and his name was uh, father andrew he was a catholic priest in actual fact but he, he didn't in as much have a church he actually ran st dismas day society and and the reason i've mentioned that was because he worked at the sharp end of the wedge in society um, with homeless people, people who, who were suffering from alcohol abuse and people who really had uh, low self-esteem they went through the net. And he came into the club and he spent a lot of time with the players. Uh, we would give him an hour a week to talk to the players and we would do different things with them. You know, we'd, we'd set up little programs to help them understand themselves better. But I got them involved with Father Andrew. On a Friday afternoon, they would go down to St. Dismas and help out with the clients there. And these people got to know them, and they grew to love the boys. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, the boys were, were given something back to society. And we, Laurie gave us like 12 tickets each week for each home game, that is. Yeah. And I said to Father Andrew, well, look, don't give them the same people, but pass them out. And the reason I've mentioned that here is because when these people turned up at the Dell in the car park, the little car park, and the boys turned up, and some of them had gotten into the first team, they would say hello to these people, mm. and they would stop and talk to them. And not only did it do the boys good, but can you imagine these people 
uh, where the players had taken the time to actually spend time with them before a game. It was fantastic. I mean, that was all part of their makeup and their character. And I don't think they ever forgot that. I think it became part of their makeup. People like Benali and Shearer and Letizia, Madison, all of those went through that program. Mm. Dave, I, w- I was going to ask, because you've you sort of led us on nicely there. I mean, I think many people will probably know that you're a very religious man yourself. And I know when we spoke to sort of arrange the interview, you said, you know, one of the benefits of some quiet time away from football at the moment is that you're getting to do some additional learning around that. When we had Neil Madison on recently, you know, he, he made it very clear just how much you'd educated him and the younger players to be responsible and hardworking individuals every day of their lives. And when I spoke to Adam a couple of weeks back, Adam Blackmore, you know, he said that all the miles that you two have tracked up and down the motorway, you know, you've really had a massive influence on the way that he now lives his life. So it's obviously important for you as a, a youth team manager and a, a human to sort of build that education into some of those players those days. It's probably an obvious question, but do you think that that element of it, the sort of integrity, the respect, the attitude, etc., is, is missing a fair bit from the modern game? I wish I could answer that question. I know that programme stopped when I left, and I think it was such an important one because it's it's all about character building it's it's all about them developing as human beings as well as footballers you know if you can get them to think right on the field and off the field then you've got a better player I just feel that during that period of time the time we spend during the week and in that particular program I mean we were extremely successful yeah and I don't think people realize just how successful these players were you know between that age of about 16 to 20 I mean, they won the league four times. They won the Southern Junior Cup. And we took them to Europe. I asked Laurie if we could take them into Europe, and that was the beginning. And we went to two areas in Europe, a place called Stemvida and Laupheim. And there were two major, major youth tournaments. And the Laupheim tournament, we got in by default because Manchester United had pulled out for some reason. I think they'd got one or two injuries and couldn't take a complete side. But somebody had said, well, try Southampton, they've got a, a good youth side. And when I got the phone call, they said, look, we'll cover everything. Yeah. I mean, this was a major big tournament. They had teams in from South America, so it'll tell you how big the tournament was. Anyway, we, we turned up, and Chris Nickel was the manager at the time, and when I took them out, I actually took uh, the players out on a Bow Street license, and I took them out on my own. And when we landed... Uh, at the airport, there was a delegation there to meet us, and they said to the boys, where's, where's the guy in charge? Where's the manager? And they said, oh, he's over there. And, of course, the boys are pulling all the skips together, and, and I'm getting everything sorted out. And they said, all oh, right, well, where's your director? Oh, we haven't got one. Where's your doctor? Oh, no, we haven't got one. Where's your physio? Oh, we haven't got one. There's only Dave. Well, when I met them, they didn't really want to give me five minutes of the day, really, and uh, we got on the coach, and it was silence all the way, and I thought, oh, gee whiz. They must have thought it was Fred Carnos. <laughs> anyway, we got to the tournament, and uh, we got through the semi-final, knocked out Leverkusen, who'd won the tournament twice. And, of course, if you win the tournament in Germany three times, you keep the cup. And uh, we got through to the final, and we won the final. But a little story which I think will be interesting for the fans was when we got to the final, Francis Benali in the semi-final got a bump on the head, a cut on the head. And I said, Francis, I don't think I'm going to play you. And he went, what? I mean, Francis is just a lovely, lovely man. But you get him on the field, he's a real tough guy. And he said, boy, I'm not missing the final, Dave. <laughs> he said, patch me up. So I said, right, okay then. 
So I put an, uh, a compression bandage on and uh, padding, and I put this crepe bandage around his head. He looked like a seat <laughs> going out to play the game in the final. Anyway, we won the final, and of course these people just couldn't believe it, like, you know. And then we went back the following season, got to the final again, and lost the final. But we also played in Stemvida. Laupine was southern Germany, and Stemvida was northern Germany, another big tournament. And we actually won that one four times in a row. The trophy was a magnificent gold, big gold cup, worth quite a lot of money. And of course, we retained that one, and it's somewhere in the club, or it should be. Mm. But the point I'm making that these boys over that period of time, two-thirds of them actually got into the first team, and we turned the first team out with two-thirds of homegrown players. So when you look at the success of Southampton Football Club and developing players, it was a very, very successful programme at that time. Yeah, I mean, alongside Neil Madison, some of these players who had the opportunity to work with you included Franny Benali, Jason Dodd, Alan Shearer, and, of course, certain Matthew Letizia. Yeah, you had Dodgy and the Wallace boys. There was just so many, to be honest, um, that came through the ranks. And the other great thing about it, and I used to say to them, look, you might not make it at the top, you might have to make it lower down, but let's make sure that you're prepared to handle that. And wherever you go, you're going to represent Southampton Football Club Mm. and how you go about it, the standards that you take with you. And I said, even if you go out of the game, carry those standards with you, good timekeeping. Be solid as an individual. And I think, you know, a goldsmith, he leaves a stamp inside his gold, a ring. And I like to feel that when you've dealt with young people from that age, I think you leave your hallmark on them like a goldsmith would leave a stamp and a ring. I'd like to think that I've had some impression or left some impression uh, with these players over a period of time. Yeah, you've got a particular tale as well about Matthew Lutiers' um, appearance up at Oxford United one evening as well, haven't you, Dave? <laughs> I'll tell you something, you know, I've seen Matthew and know Matthew. I mean, Matthew, Matthew was a genius. Mm. As a player, in my opinion, uh, he was a genius. He could do things that a coach couldn't coach in a thousand years. But I saw him score some great goals, one goal in the first team against Newcastle. But the one that sticks in my mind better than, than ever was in the youth team. We played at Oxford and we were playing away. And he wasn't too involved in the first half, so I pulled him uh, to one side, away from the players, and I said, Matthew, you're not in the game. I said, second half, I just want you to roam across the front, anywhere across the front. When we go back in the dressing room, I'll just say to the boys, try to get the ball to your feet. So he said, yeah, fine, okay, Dave. I mean, Matthew's a great lad. Mm. And Jeff Kenner was playing left back. Jeff Kenner picks a ball up at left back, and he chips this ball up to the halfway line, and Matthew takes the ball on his chest. He's got a, a play around him, a midfield play around him. He rolls him inside. And now he's running at over the halfway line into the Oxford half. And he's running at their defence. He dips his shoulder, goes past one midfield player. Dips his shoulder, goes past a centre-back. Comes up against the other centre-back. He knocks it to one side. And by this time, the left-back's coming in. He's got between them both. And he bends the ball into the top corner. And honestly, at any level, anywhere in the world, you would not have seen a piece of skill in finishing like it. And I came back after the game, and we're in the, uh, the staff room after the first team match, and I said to Chris Nickel and Dennis Rolfe and the staff, I said, 
we've got a boy here who I think will be absolutely top-notch. I said, I think he's got a touch of genius about him. And, of course, they went, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And, of course, <laughs> that's how he turned out, didn't he? He did indeed, he did indeed. So, yeah. Um, you mentioned um, Chris Nickel there. You obviously mentioned Laurie earlier, Dave. Of course, you also worked alongside or under Ian Bramford and Alan Ball. So how did you find those guys to work with? And I think, Ian, particularly, you mentioned uh, before deciding to sort of shuffle things around and giving you a bit of an ultimatum. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, uh, Laurie was a, an experienced guy and uh, he was a, a man-manager, Laurie. All of the, the managers I've worked for throughout my career, they've all been good people and all had something uh, different to offer. Borley was very enthusiastic. I loved working with Borley. He was funny, humorous, good coach. Uh, Branny was an intelligent guy. He came with a, a set of ideas uh, because he'd been successful at Reading, he wanted to use those ideas at Southampton. The problem was, it was Premier League First Division stuff, and uh, he had a bit of a problem uh, with Matthew, mm. because Matthew could be, or appear to be, lazy at times. Ian left him out of the side, and uh, he said to me, because at that particular time, I was working with the reserve team. And what he did when he came in, in he wanted to freshen things up. He changed um, to the staff round, mm. myself and Ray Graydon, and said, right, you're going to do the reserves, Dave, now, and Ray's going to do the youth. And, of course, Ray said, well, I don't know anything about the youth. They set out in the paperwork, and, well, you'll have to learn. So we said, well, look, do we need to do this? And he said, well, yeah. There's no option. There's the door. If you don't, and that's where I want it, and that's the way we're going to do it. And he was a, he was a nice guy. In he was set in his ways. That's how he wanted it done. And of course, when he left Matty out, he passed Matty back to me because I knew Matty best. And uh, Lou Chatley, who was his number two at the time, said, "Look, Dave knows Matty. Why don't you let Dave handle him um, and get him fit?" And of course, I got a hold of Matty, and Matty said, "Oh, Dave, you're going to run me." And I said, no, I'm not going to do that, Matty. Oh, he said, great. I said, I'm going to work you with the ball. Mm. And what I did, I worked him um, with the ball, one-on-one, uh, two-on-two, two-on-one. And, of course, when you do that with a ball, you had to get a ball, come back, get a shot in, beat a player, come back, get a ball. When you've done that for about 20 minutes, half an hour, you are shattered. Yeah. And, of course, eventually I got Matty's way down, got him fit. But he was never a problem, man. He got back in the first team and he never looked back. Yeah. So it must have been as rewarding for you then, Dave, having put all that work in with Matty. We think back to that Newcastle game when Bramford recorded him and he played and scored those two brilliant goals, won us the game. So almost as rewarding for you as it must have been for Matt. Oh, yeah. I'm, I mean, one of the things that uh, probably people don't understand, you know, it's great working with the first team and it's great atmosphere in the Premier League now. But the greatest joy and I mean this with all sincerity and with all my heart, is when you develop a player, uh, you've had such an impact on him, you've seen him come from your team, and with some of the players I've handled, they've jumped from my team straight into the first team. Mm. You know, I mean, when you see that, I mean, I'll give you uh, an example of that. Chris Nickel was the manager at the time. He'd gone 21, 22 games without a result. He was having a bad time, and uh, I, I said to him, look, I've got a boy in the side here, play him, Alan Shearer. And uh, I said, I'm not telling you to do something, Chris, that I haven't done myself. I said, when I was at Sunland and I took over, I said, I played a boy called Rob Hindmarsh and he was 16. I played him in the FA Cup. 
I said, but he was mentally and physically strong enough to handle it. Mm. And I said, this boy, Shearer, is the same. I said, he's strong mind, he's strong world, he's strong physically. I said, he's got a great right foot. He said, yeah, right, okay, I'll think about it. And six weeks later, I kept mentioning it to Dennis Rofe, and he said, Dennis said, well, I've, I've, I've mentioned it to Chris. Anyway, cutting a long story short, Chris said, uh, look, can I have a word with you uh, in my office? So I went up, and uh, he said, tell me about Shearer. And I said, Chris, I can't tell you any more about Shearer. I would play him. Mm. And he said, but it's a big risk for me, Dave. We're going through a bad time. I said, doesn't matter. Even if you stick the boy in for one game or three games or six games, I said, it's worth a chance. You're not scoring goals anyway. So he said, right, OK. Anyway, they stuck the boy in. And it was against Arsenal. And, of course, history <laughs> records that he scored three. Yeah, yeah. But Shearer, you know, I mean, I worked with Shearer. And I said to him one day, the little stories, the funny stories. And I said, Alan, I said, we're going to work on that right foot of yours and, and, and keep working it. I said, because it's absolutely, it's like a thunderbolt. <laughs> I said, it's like Puskas's left foot. And he went, who's Puskas? <laughs> and I said, Puskas was a Hungarian playing for Real Madrid. I said, but his left foot, it was like a sledgehammer. I said, and your right foot's like that. Yeah. And of course it was. Alan's, you get him on his right side and you, and you see the goals and boy, could he strike the ball. Yeah. I've been blessed, to be honest with you, because all the boys I've worked with, I mean, their characters and their development. It's just been a, a joy and thrilling to have worked with them, you know. There was such a pleasure to work with. And not only the ones that made it into the first teams, but other boys like Phil Parkinson who went on. Mm. And I got Phil, when he left the club, I got Phil fixed up uh, at a club and he went on to have a good career. And then he went on and, of course, now he's a good manager as well. Yeah, yeah. Those people... You know, like Paul Tisdale. Mm. These players have gone on, didn't make it at the, what you call the top level, but have gone on to make their own name in the game, yeah. you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, eventually, after nearly a decade coaching at youth level and reserves, as you mentioned there, with Chris Nicol and Ian Bramford having moved on from the Dell, in 1995, you got approached by Guy Askham, then Saints chairman, Dave, about becoming first-team manager. So what are your memories of that conversation with Mr. Askham and the, the way the opportunity was presented to you? They were going to bring uh, someone else in, from what I, I can gather, but it turned out Laurie had uh, had a meeting with us and, and said, look, it, there's a possibility that uh, all the staff could go if somebody else comes in, unless uh, one of us takes it. It was a situation where John Mortimer said he felt he was too old, Lou Chatley didn't want it, mm. and I had the experience. I said, well, look, I've had the experience. I said but of means of it keeping us all in place, um, I'd be happy to take the job. That's if they want me to take the job. Anyway, Guy Askham got a hold of me and said, look, we've had a board meeting. We'd like you to take the job. That's the good news. <laughs> the bad news is there's no money. Mm. And, of course, Alan Ball had left and gone to Manchester City. We didn't really want him to leave because we enjoyed working with Borley. But he went there, got better wages, got more money, had more money to spend on players, and, of course... I said to the chairman, well, where is the money? He said, well, we're up to the, the level with the bank. They won't lend us any more money. We've got to survive for a season until we can get the TV money in, mm. which should be about 10 or 11 million. And if we can do that, then uh, we might be able to give you somewhere in the region of about five, six, seven million to spend on players. So I said, but the hell, that's a tall order guy to keep you in the Premier League without any money. And of course, when I told the staff, 
they said, Dave, that's impossible. But <laughs> nevertheless, we took the job on and uh, the staff were brilliant. The players were brilliant. We didn't have any money and we worked hard uh, technically coaching them. Mm. We tried to come up with uh, innovations, new ideas uh, to motivate them tactically. Um, we had little schemes within the dressing room. And I have to say, the players were absolutely brilliant. Mm. But when we got towards the end of the season, it was getting very, very tight down there. And uh, unfortunately, the last two games, my wife took seriously ill, taken into intensive care. And um, that was probably the hardest experience I've ever gone through in my life. Mm. You know, trying to handle the first team and the pressures of the club and keeping the club in the Premier League and, and my wife in hospital. But... Uh, we got to the last two games and we were very bold in our decision-making at Bolton. That was the game yeah. before the end game, which the last game was Wimbledon. And I wasn't quite sure how Wimbledon would turn up. You never know whether it would come crash, bang, wallop. What sort of team they would turn up, how they would play, uh, whether they'd kick you off the park or not. Or... And I felt at Bolton we had a chance of winning that game. And of course, I did something which was a bit different. I said to the players and the staff, we're going to play with three up the front interchanging up the front uh, with ball, all, all three strikers in a free roll up the front yeah. trying to get them between the back four and of course Matty achieved that and got the goal and uh, that was the result I think that kept us up mm. but the sad part about that story for me is that after the final game against Wimbledon I was so desperate to get away to see my wife in intensive care I never really got the joy with the fans because there were they were excellent. I mean, throughout that season, I'd come down the tunnel and uh, I'd try and pump the, the fans up yeah, yeah, and they responded. Yeah. And I have to say this, and hand on my heart, they talk about fans all over the country, but I can honestly say the Southampton fans are as good as any. Moving on from a coaching position, obviously, to becoming the first team manager, Dave, it was obviously a lot harder and more demanding for you. Was this something that you were expecting from the job? No, the job, I mean, don't forget, I'd, I'd worked with Jimmy Adamson at Sunderland as deputy manager and took over for a while and took over at Leeds for a while as well. So I, I knew I knew the, the job. I mean, um, when you've been in the game a long time, you become a good pro at it. You just hope you can get the rub of the green and, and get the success. But doing the job, was it was, it was fantastic. I mean... Uh, Picking the side and getting the players to respond and getting the tactics right, you know, getting your philosophy across. All those things are part of the job, but I'd done that for many, many years, so it wasn't really foreign to me. It was just that at the time we, we didn't have any money, but we did the job regardless, you know. Okay, and one thing you did try and make it work as well was the setting little targets, is that right? Yeah, what we did in, in in the dressing room, I used to have a bit of fun with them and I, I would go in and I would pin up like three games or four games and I would say, right, okay, get your money out where your <laughs> mouth is. And I said, how many are we going to win? How many how many goals will we get? How many how many uh, points are we going to take out of this little three or four game batch? And of course, we, we made it funny, you know, we put the players on the scales and uh, one week we'd go in and we'd say, right, you're on the scales every day this week. And Matty would go, oh, no, Dave, not every day. And little little bits of fun, that, because players, they, they love a joke, they love a laugh, and it's that camaraderie. And if you can keep that spirit, 
in that camaraderie in the dressing room, which we kept throughout that season. But like I say, the players were absolutely brilliant. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, one of the advantages, obviously, with Letiz, Benali, Madison, Dodd, Tommy Witherington, Paul Tisdale, etc., were all around the, the first-team squad by then. How important was it for you to have a group of players that you knew so well and vice versa? Um, when players know you and they know how you work, they know how disciplined you are. And one of the things that they recognized when I was working with them, everybody knew what was required of their jobs, their positions, because don't forget, I'd, I'd done this with them since they were 16. Yeah. So they knew uh, how to play right back. They knew how to play center half. They knew what was expected in midfield. They knew that if you were playing in a wide position, we wanted the ball in the box. We knew we'd attack the near post and the back stick, and we knew we'd have somebody on the penalty spot as well when that ball was coming in. So all those disciplines, those boys already knew them. So in a way, that was a godsend. And one thing we remember, Dave, as you mentioned, is uh, about your stint in charge, is the passion you used to show when you came out of the tunnel at the Dow and walked to, along to the dugout. I think I mentioned to you when we first sort of had a chat a couple of weeks back that I was lower west, so we always used to sort of sit there and wait for you, and you'd have your little piece of paper in your hand, and you'd be geeing up the crowd and pumping your fists and pointing to the players and imploring all of us to get behind the team and that sort of thing. So I think we all used to love that, Dave, but you must have been knackered by the time you got to the halfway line. <laughs> I, uh, one of the things, and this is a game of, of passion, you know, and it's a game of opinions. And you've got to bear in mind when these guys have, uh, and, and ladies as well, and children, they, they, they pay the money and they come on. They've all got their own ideas of the game, how it should be played and what players they would pick. But they're passionate. Fans are passionate. Mm. And they like to see what I feel they like to see and they like to have a rapport with the manager, and they like them to be passionate. I think they have a manager at the moment yeah. who's passionate, uh, who cares, uh, and I think the, the crowd like that. And uh, one of the things I felt over many years living in Southampton, I've always been very grateful to the fans because they've been tremendous with me. I've always had a, a great rapport with them, yeah. and uh, I think that's something very special. I think your passion is the key thing, Dave, absolutely. And uh, your season in charge would see us have a decent league and FA Cup run, obviously uh, reaching the quarterfinal in the latter. And, of course, we beat Pompey along the way 3-0 as well, which is always an enjoyable thing. Um, in the Premier League, it was obviously a bit more of a harder slog for some of the reasons that you mentioned, but we did have some memorable wins, ultimately coming towards the end of the season. We won three of the last six games, as you'll remember. And, of course, you got April 1995 Premier League Manager of the Month as well, which must have been a, a nice accolade, particularly given your wife's situation. And, um, yeah. You mentioned the Bolton away game, Dave, but I think for lots of us, um, you know, the Manchester United home game, of course, the the grey day for United when we, I mean, we were scintillating first half, weren't we? But do you think that was the sort of most memorable uh, result for you, beating Alex Ferguson and, and United on that day, or or not? Yeah, I, I think so. But I think you've got to bear in mind as well is when you're playing against your local sides, Bournemouth, who are now in the Premier League, and by the way, they've done terrific. I mean, it's like a fairy tale. Mm. Who would have thought? Ten years ago, Bournemouth would be in the Premier League. Nobody would have thought that, but Eddie's done a great job there. So when you come to play local derbies like we played against Portsmouth, you've got to bear in mind that, and I used to get this across to the players, or I tried to, and I'm sure I did, on a Monday morning, these people have got to go back into work, (laughs) and uh, they like to go in and know their team's won, and if it's been a derby game, it's even more important. 
and I just know how the fans felt. So that cup game against Portsmouth, it was so important for the team to win that one. Uh, the players bought into that type of atmosphere and uh, what I was trying to get through to them was the importance of the fans uh, going to work. You have to feel for them. You have to understand that. They bought into all of that. We won the game really well. And, of course, then we had the Man United game. And I thought in that first half we were scintillating. We, we moved the ball around. We scored goals. Uh, I thought United struggled against us that day. But the interesting thing about that particular game was at half-time mm. when we'd gone into the dressing room, I'd spoke to the players, and I said, look, the same again. Let's get out there. You've been absolutely terrific. Keep that ball moving. Keep the one-touch and two-touch. Keep supporting each other. Uh, but let's keep it tight at the back. And, of course, I come out, and as I walk out, I thought, we're playing a different team. <laughs> they changed the strip. And do you know what? I couldn't believe it. I got the referee and I went, hey, what's going on? He said, what do you mean? I said, the strip. He said, I didn't know anything about it. <laughs> so Alex hadn't even told the referee. So the referee didn't know. I didn't know. They've gone out and, uh, and from what I can gather, the, the players had said, oh, this strip we've got on, we can't see each other properly. And uh, of course, I don't think they could see each other properly in the second half either because <laughs> we still won. But... Uh, it was quite an experience, that, to be honest. Yeah. And if I seem to remember just before Will comes in, Dave, I think they wore that kit that they wore in the second half the following season, and we beat them 6-3, so it didn't do much from good uh, then either. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> OK, so we'd eventually stay up on goal difference um, over Man City, uh, ending with 38 points from the 38 games. Uh, just to summarise, what kind of achievement that was given? Obviously, you said earlier, Dave, that you had absolutely no budget at all to work with. I think if you look back, I don't know, maybe somebody will do this, but I don't think anybody um, has stayed up in the Premier League without any money like we had. I mean, uh, you have to compliment the staff and the players. We all worked together. We all pulled together. It was this team spirit. But we achieved something that I don't think has been done in the Premier League since. It was a great atmosphere, a great feeling. And, of course, um, Alan had gone up, and I felt for Alan because with working with him and he was the, the side that went down as well and uh, he'd spend a lot of money there and I just felt sorry for him as well you know but uh, that's football isn't it you you do the job and whether you stay up with one point or ten points it doesn't make any difference like you know whether you stay up on goal difference the the thing is it's about staying in the Premier League and I I've said this to Adam on many occasions mm. the priority outside of maybe your top four to six clubs the rest of the clubs in the Premier League, what you've got to understand, your first and most important call is to make sure your team stays in the Premier League. Absolutely. But despite all that, Guy Askham got you in just after the season finished to advise that, I think you said he he wasn't sacking you, uh, Dave, but uh, instead relieving you of your duties, seemingly using your wife's situation as part of his uh, excuse, let's call it that. But not always as it seemed, right? Because uh, I think, Quite quickly, it became apparent the club were in the midst of being taken over by Rupert Lowe's group, and with them wanting to float on the stock exchange, a bigger name manager was sought, which uh, obviously saw Graham Souness come in. So, after you'd done all you had for the club, Dave, over all those years and keeping them in the Premier League, what was your view on the, the conversation with Askham and sort of the way that maybe you were treated? I've never been a, a better person. I've, as a Christian, I've moved on, and mm. there are more important things in, in life, and I had to the worry of my wife, and we got through that. But I actually said to him, well, you're actually sacking me. 
And he said, no, no, we're not, I'm not sagging you. We're not sagging you. We're relieving you of your duties. I said, well, to me, you're sagging me. Um, but that was part and parcel of what happened. Uh, and on top of that, they were in the process, a takeover at the club. I think there was two groups involved. Uh, Rupert Law came in after Guy Askham. I'd gone then, but I think the takeover, part of the deal was that they wanted a high-profile manager. Maybe that was one of the, one of the reasons. I don't know, really. But they brought in Graham Sooner, so I, I have a lot of time for. Graham is uh, he's a great pundit on the telly. He's one of the best on the telly. He's very honest. Uh, very direct, and I think that when he came into the club, I don't think he realised how difficult the job was. I think he spent something like seven million yeah. and finished up in the same position as as I did. And yeah. Uh, yeah. I think he stuck it for a season and then went off to Italy. But it's a job where you've got to get to the training ground, you've got to coach, you've got to work at it. Graham was a great lad, and uh, I think when they went on the stock market, they wanted a, a high profile name to boost the shares from what I can gather yeah you're right I mean I remember being up at Villa Park on the last day under Sunus when we stayed up so you're right it did go to the the last day that season as well but uh, look I mean thankfully your your wife obviously recovered which was the uh, the most important thing of course then you had a brief spell at Warsaw alongside Colin Lee in the early noughties and after a bit of time away from the game you eventually teamed up with Adam Blackmore and Radio Solent becoming the dedicated summariser on Saints matches day so you know how much fun has it been for you to do all that over the last sort of decade or so what happened was I brought two boys into the game when I was working at Bristol City, um, Mark McGee and Colin Lee. And they'd taken over at Reading, uh, did a good job there, and they moved, I think they moved to Leicester and then eventually to Wolves. During that period of time I was out of the game, your finances run down, you, you go through your savings, mm. and, uh, and you need a job. And Mark McGee and Colin Lee rang me up and said, look, there's a job here, we need a chief scout. So I was running short of money and I took the job. And one of the things was that when I, I went into it, I did the job right. I reorganized the whole structure of the scouting, both abroad and in this country. And um, I enjoyed the job. But to be honest, my forte is coaching. Mm. And George Graham rang me. He was at Leeds and uh, he wanted somebody to do the youth manager's job. And, uh, and I took a job there. And then eventually George left. I left. I started doing some work with BBC. Grant Coleman actually rang me first. And Grant was a great help to me because when he said to me, Dave, how about coming in and doing some work with BBC? I said, well, I'll come in on one condition, Grant. And he said, what's that? I said, I don't want to come in haphazardly. I would like to learn how you do the job, how you go about it. And you know what? Grant was brilliant. He really taught me the ropes behind the scenes of how uh, radio works, how the setup is, and uh, and I'd be very very grateful. And of course, during that period of time, I went back and Colin Lee took a job at Walsall, and I helped them out there for a period of time. And then Adam took over at BBC, and I've been working with Adam part time uh, because I'm I'm sort of semi-retired anyway. Mm. And uh, you know what? It's been terrific working with them. We've done a lot of miles. We talk about the game going up. We talk about the game coming back. (laughs) We analyse everything. We have a laugh. He's a great lad, and you can have a good laugh with him. Mm. He likes a joke, and uh, and he's great to work with. I mean, obviously, you've seen hundreds of games with the microphone in hand, some good, some bad, and 
not one that they mentioned, a 9-0 loss to Leicester, some blooming ugly. <laughs> if you had to pick out several games or moments that stick with you over the past decade or so, which would they be? Before I answer that question, I would say this. I'd say, I would think when you're on the radio, I think your reputation's important. And I think that when the side is doing well, you've got to portray that to your listeners and to the fans. They've got to know who's doing well, which individual players are doing well, why is the team doing well, why the tactics are being successful. And, and you've got to explain all of that. But at the same time, when they're not doing well, uh, you haven't got to be afraid to explain that as well. And I think the fans understand that. And I think they appreciate my honesty in telling them that as well. But to the question, a game that sticks out in my mind, it wasn't so much the game. It was just the atmosphere. It was into Milan. We went to Milan. Mm -hmm. And there was 8,000 Southampton supporters there. And we've gone down into the square to do interviews they are milling all over the place. They were fantastic. <laughs> we interviewed them. They were on a high. They, they came out to enjoy the game, and to enjoy Italy. It was just such a fantastic atmosphere. It's one game that sticks in my mind because of the fans. Yeah. Um, look, last question, Dave, because we've stolen an hour of your uh, time. But look, we've not had the chance to hear your dulcet tones and views for a few weeks on Salem now due to the coronavirus situation. But I was just interested to get your general view on Saints, the manager and the players at the moment. Do you sort of feel that they've got the ability to go places or are you, you're slightly nervous about what the actual sort of strategy is and where any potential investment that probably is needed across the squad may come from? I think summing up the squad, the squad's good enough to stay in the Premier League. I think the manager is doing a good job. I like the manager. He's enthusiastic. He's not trying to change his tactics. I think he's a thinking, a thinking manager. You know, he's a tracksuit manager. I think if he's given the right resources, I think he's a, a manager who wants to develop. Mm. And I think that's very, very important to Southampton Football Club, that they remain a club who develop their own players. And when you do that, if you've got that blueprint... What that blueprint tells you is where you need to spend the money. And, of course, if you can select the right players, and I just feel we've gone through a couple of seasons where we haven't selected particularly well. We had two seasons where we were brilliant mm. with the likes of Van Dijk and, and others, uh, Tadic and those players. I mean, they were great signings. Mm. But the squad at the moment needs strengthening. It's a good squad. They're honest players. They're workmanlike. I think the manager's the right one. I think what he needs now is real support from the board. I know we're in difficult times financially, yeah. but I'm not quite sure about the owners of the club at the moment, whether they're really prepared to take the club to another level. By that, I mean, will they help the manager to invest to make the team better so they're not just a team fighting off the bottom six, mm. but can push higher up above halfway and make them into a more solid outfit uh, and a better side. I just hope that he gets those resources to do that. Well, I don't think we can sum up enough how much of a privilege it's been having you on Total Recall, Dave. You're probably the most northern southerner any of us know. We completely love you and your uh, passion and Wilma South, <laughs> and everyone listening will absolutely agree, I think, on thanking you for everything you've done for Saints over the years and also for the wonderful commentary you and Adam bring us each week. So thanks for joining us, Dave. 
Yeah, can I just say to Will and, and yourself, Ben, it's been a delight to do this evening, but I'd like to finish on, on one more thing. I think we're in a, a terrible situation in the country at the moment, and you stop and we talk about football, we all love football, we're all passionate about football, but let's just stop and think uh, how important it is for the doctors and the nurses and the helpers, the cleaners, all those who are helping out in hospitals, working on the front line at this time. And, of course, those patients who've got coronavirus and are really struggling at this time. And I would just like to say that as a country uh, and as a football club and as fans, uh, I'd just like to say to those working in the National Health Service, well done. We do appreciate it. We love you to bits. And you've actually become our role models. Dave, I couldn't have said it any better. Thank you. That's a, a brilliant way to end it. That's been Total Recall with Saints legend Dave Merrington. Total Saints Podcast. Total Saints Podcast. Sponsored by happyhottubs.co.uk. Well, a massive thank you again to Dave Merrington. What a wonderful bloke, a true saint, and we're very, very fortunate to have had him so involved with the club over so many years and still giving us all of his views and opinions on Radio Solent these days. I must also say a big thank you to Adam Blackmore for putting us in touch with Dave. Finally, as always, big thanks to Will from saintsarchive.com. You can check out their brilliant group on Facebook. All you have to do is search for Saints Archive. Just before we go, it's the 75th anniversary of VE this weekend, victory in Europe of course, so we'd like to pay our TSP respects to all the men and women who sacrificed so much for us during World War II and all the other major events over the years, lest we forget. Finally, I also just wanted to send our best TSP wishes to Mange, Simon and all the team at Five Rivers. Unfortunately, they've had to close their pub. Lockdown, of course, has been very tough for lots of businesses, so it was really sad to hear that news. Um, Always be very, very grateful to all of the team there for their hospitality when we did TSP 100 Live back in January of this year. It's a a wonderful venue and uh, very, very sad to hear that it's had to close down. So uh, certainly send our best wishes to all of them. We'll be back next week when we'll be chatting Life of a Saint and we'll also be speaking to a saint living over in the Canary Islands about his time following saints and working as a steward at the Dell. Until then, as ever, keep safe, keep well and keep marching in. days are great but there's nothing quite like playing at home the same goes for mcdonald's maximize your home ground advantage with mcdelivery order now on the mcdonald's app at participating restaurants 18 plus serving times delivery fee and terms apply see mcdonald's.com planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.